You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Shannon Tiazzi, The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief and our resident China hand. Shannon, as always, thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure, Ankit. Great. Uh, very happy to have you on. We are five days, uh, almost at the end of the fifth day of the Trump administration as we record this podcast and the topic I want to devote this episode to, Shannon, and I'm so glad to have you back on the show, is to talk about U.S.-China policy. And we talked about this a bit with Prashant a few episodes ago when we talked about the call between Donald Trump and Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, which I think was a very interesting moment during the transition. But here we are. Donald Trump is officially president of the United States. He's been sworn in. And if you look back at the transition, there was plenty of telegraphing going on about a you know an interesting time for U.S.-China relations ahead. And I think the Chinese have caught on to this. And we've seen a few moves from them that are suggestive of China starting to ready itself for the Trump era in U.S. policy. But, uh, you know, there's a lot I want to talk about on this podcast. And uh, really, I think there's three aspects, first of all, that we can talk about regarding Trump's potential plans for U.S. relations with China. Uh, the first of these, um, and I think possibly the most important in some ways, is the one China policy and U.S. relations with Taiwan. Trump and his staff have hinted over the course of the transition that they may be willing to revisit this. And more worryingly, they've indicated a significant degree of comfort with this idea of using Taiwan, uh, you know, an island of 23 million people as a potential bargaining chip between these two great powers uh, in Asia. So we can talk a bit about that. Um, and the other issue is trade, which is one of the areas where the Trump administration has devoted a significant bit of uh, intellectual energy. Uh, you have a coterie of Trump advisors, including Peter Navarro, Robert Lighthizer, the trade representative, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, who was approved by his committee today. Um, all of these people uh, you know, agree with Trump on the notion that the United States needs to crack down on trade with China, uh, punish China for being a protectionist, and essentially work to bring the U.S. trade deficit into line and ideally work towards a trade surplus. And that's just a broad goal of U.S. trade policy, not specifically regarding China. Um, but, you know, they've hinted at a trade war, potentially hinting, uh, hitting China with punitive tariffs um, as well. And the final area is obviously, you know, the South China Sea and broader defense issues. And here we have had some worrying comments in the first uh, hours of this administration. Um, but I'll leave it to you, Shannon, from here to talk a bit about that. So I guess first, let's start by talking about the South China Sea, actually, since that's the most recent um, piece of evidence we have. So Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, said some pretty interesting things about the South China Sea yesterday that I wrote about. But Shannon, I want to hear your thoughts here on what Spicer said and where you think this administration is going to put its foot down on the South China Sea as it comes into office. Sure. Um, so I'll just repeat the, the gist of his remarks in case anyone listening um, hasn't read your excellent piece yet, which I would definitely recommend. Um, so he's asked about the South China Sea, and Spicer says, the U.S. is going to make sure that we protect our interests there. And then he goes on to say, and this is the part that's really got analysts like us, our heads spinning. Um, this is a quote. If it's a question of if those islands are in fact in international waters and not part of China proper, then yeah, we're going to make sure that we defend international territories from being taken over by one country. Um, so there's a lot to parse in that statement. Uh, I think first and foremost, as you pointed out, it, it signals that Spicer does not understand <laughs> the nuances of this issue. Um, going from talking about international waters to defending international territories, um, which is a concept that does not apply to the South China Sea, is a bit of a stretch. 
Um, but he also seems to completely misunderstand, you know, the, what's the point of international waters. Um, and part of this is, I think there's a tendency to conflate what Spicer said with the inflammatory remarks that Rex Tillerson, um, the Secretary of State, made in his confirmation hearings a while back. Right. Which you also wrote about, uh, where he essentially threatened a blockade, um, saying we're going to prevent China from accessing these artificial islands they've built. Um, this, as you have detailed, this is a massive sea change, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> from the United States traditional policy, which is we don't recognize any sovereignty claims. And what Spicer is saying is, in fact, negating any claim that China has to features in the South China Sea by saying they're not part of China proper. Um, China has no claim to them, which is obviously very troubling for Beijing um, and seems to be legitimizing claims by maybe the Philippines or Vietnam over China's. Right. <clears throat> and second, it, it sort of misunderstands the the point of international waters. Um, and again, I think it's telling that neither of them are mentioning freedom of navigation in the way that the Obama administration has held that up. It's obviously freedom of navigation works both ways. Right. If you're saying South China Sea is international waters in accordance with the ruling by the International Tribunal, then the United States has no right to block China from accessing those waters, just as China has no right to block the U.S., the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, anyone else from accessing those waters. Um, so it's very worrying. You know, I think anyone who studies the South China Sea seriously has come out and said that this is more or less a terrible idea. Uh, a blockade would potentially be an act of war, especially in a politically sensitive year like this is for China. They're not going to be able domestically to just except um, the U.S. blocking them from accessing territories they've held for decades. Um, that, you know, building up on those territories is new, China occupying them is not. Uh, so I think it's interesting that we've gone from, oh, the one-China policy in Taiwan is the major flashpoint in U.S.-China relations. Now it seems to be back to the South China Sea. <laughs> so it really just seems like every part of U.S.-China relations could potentially explode at any moment. Yeah. Just have to see. No, that was a great rundown. I got to say, I found the Chinese reaction to be um, pretty funny in a way, because um, you essentially had the foreign ministry spokesperson reminding Sean Spicer of what the U.S. policy is. And, you know, they basically said, by the way, the U.S. is not a claimant in the South China Sea, so we hope you don't take a position on sovereignty all of a sudden. But look, you know, I mean, I was watching this live, and I have to say that Spicer... I think he honestly, you know, he probably hasn't been briefed on this. Um, and there's a reason that I headlined my article, the US, you know, the Trump administration needs a South China Sea policy because they don't have a South China Sea. Uh, they're angry about the South China Sea like a lot of people are. Uh, you know, China's built these artificial islands. And I think they know that basic fact that China has these facilities there. They've been militarizing, but obviously they don't understand the international law context, as we saw with Spicer's comments. So what, you know, what Spicer should have done, like any foreign ministry spokesperson, when they're asked about something that their government doesn't have a policy on yet, is just say, no comment ask me later but instead you know he kind of went on this rambling um tirade about international territories and whatnot uh that could cause serious conflicts i mean you know that doesn't really get him off the leash because when you're a government spokesperson you should know better than to you know simply say things that might not be policy yet and you know i mean the flip side is that if this you know if this actually is policy it didn't seem like it to me given you know spicer's body language and the way he was speaking about it if this is policy i mean it does represent a really serious change and then 
And then the thing is, you have to be very clear about what you're signaling to China. If you're signaling that the U.S. priority is no longer freedom of navigation and the United States is going to privilege other claims over China's claims, then, you know, that's a point worth making very clear since that really does lay the groundwork for conflict, as I think you very correctly noted. Um, so I think we'll see where we end up. I mean, you also had that Trump tweet, I believe, uh, just after the call with Tsai, where he said, why does China not ask us for permission, uh, which also, you know, raised some eyebrows in Beijing. So this is this is setting up quite a bit of confusion here, uh, which is really not that great when you have, um, you know, U.S. Navy ships in the South China Sea conducting uh, daily patrols, if not uh, freedom of navigation patrols. So, uh, you know, one of my hopes is that this administration um, gives some attention to this issue and comes up with a coherent policy. And, you know, I mean, they have every right to change the Obama administration's policy, which, by the way, also stuck with former policy before that, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, all privileged freedom of navigation, even though the South China Sea disputes were nowhere near as active back then. But, um, you know, if they're going to change things, they should be clear about communicating it. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's the South China Sea for now. Um, let's move on to talking about trade a bit. Um, we'll come back to Taiwan, but uh, you know, I want to talk about trade because that's one of the areas where this administration's um, been focusing quite a bit. Uh, obviously, we had the big executive order on Monday uh, where Trump formally signed an order asking the U.S. government to withdraw the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, that we can talk about, you know, in two ways. Um, I think, you know, first let's talk a bit about U.S.-China trade relations in general, and then we'll come back to TPP and how far that's a win for China. So, Shannon, you know, I mean, I I brought up some of these people who've been advising China. I mean, you have, uh, you know, a guy like Peter Navarro, economist at UC Irvine, who, uh, you know, notably put together a documentary called uh, Death by China. He is no fan of China, um, and he's no fan of China's trade practices, and he is running um, Trump's trade, uh, National Trade Council, which is a new uh, body under the U.S. Trade Representative. And you have Robert Lighthizer, who, like Navarro, doesn't like China's trade practices. And Trump himself has been harping on China being the sole cause of U.S. job loss. Um, and, you know, I mean, I will say here that there is some research to back up the fact that permanent normal trade relations with the, with China in uh, late 2001 led to some displacement for U.S. workers in manufacturing. Um, China's entry into the WTO, um, I believe Navarro has called, you know, a disaster and sees as one of the worst um, decisions by the United States to support that move. So what's your sense of where things are going to go here? Um, obviously, there's pretty strong signaling here that we are potentially about to see a trade war or a very strong deterioration in trade ties between these two countries. Um, but, you know, what's your sense and what do you think the Chinese are looking for here? I mean, they still seem to be talking about win-win cooperation, uh, not seriously um, entertaining the possibility that they're about to enter a, uh, you know, 1920s sort of environment with the United States. So um, what's your take? China will never stop talking about win <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's one of the few things that will never change. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's one of the things you can take to the bank. Um, I think trade is, you know, it, you can obviously, we have no idea how far Trump will take it. There's a, a big difference between promising to crack down on trade violations, which the Obama administration was doing by filing cases at the World Trade Organization, um, so Trump could continue that policy, or he could make good on his you know, kind of off-the-cuff campaign promise to put 45% tariffs on Chinese goods, and there's a lot of middle ground mm -hmm. in between there. We don't know where he'll end up, um, but I think it's pretty clear we are going to see some sort of crackdown on uh, Chinese trade practices. It was a central part of Trump's campaign. 
Um, it's one of the areas where his advisors, um, at, you know, as you mentioned, and Trump himself seem all exactly on the same page. Uh, some of these security issues, the South China Sea, there's you know, a lot more divergence between key cabinet national security council members and some of the things that Trump has said. Uh, but on trade, they all seem to be on the same page. You know, other countries are stealing U.S. jobs. Globalization, free trade agreements are not good for the United States. We've been taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. America um, and first. One, mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And I think the center of America first is really on trade. Um, that's the first part of America first. Uh, so what's interesting is that in this TPP announcement, which, you know, is, is being billed as a win for China because China wasn't part of the TPP and the TPP could negatively impact China in several ways. Um, I don't think China's too happy about this announcement because in addition to saying we're withdrawing from TPP, uh, Trump is promising to crack down on nations that violate trade agreements and harm American workers. And that's, you know, he doesn't mention China at all, but it's a pretty clear uh, indication that it won't be long before he starts taking some sort of action against China. And given his distaste for international organizations and the molasses slow pace of these complex cases at the WTO, um, I think it's unlikely that he's going to pursue that angle, which is really the least controversial way of dealing with trade disputes, taking them to arbitration at the WTO. So, you know, what is he going to do? Um, are we going to actually see him declare China currency manipulator, which numerous presidents have promised to do, uh, no one has ever actually done. And it seems pretty clear to most economists that China is in fact now trying to keep its currency value up rather than dropping it artificially uh, to prop up its exports. Um, you know, and we have to put this in context, right? It's pretty clear that China is engaging in some shady trade practices, mm -hmm. uh, whether this is, you know, steel dumping or, you know, giving government massive government subsidies to its state-owned enterprises in a way that makes them more competitive or giving them government funding to buy out their competitors in key industries. There are a lot of things that I think any president could and should be talking seriously with China about and laying out consequences for those things. But if you look at the, the things he's harped on so far um, and just the general strategies that have been thrown out there, I don't think Trump is going to go about this in a responsible way. Right. <laughs> and that has people in China very worried. Um, you know, the Global Times tried to put on a brave face by saying China won't be impacted by a trade war, but that's just ridiculous. Of course, China would be with its number one trading partner. Uh, of course, the United States would be impacted. Uh, and the question is whether Trump and his team really understand just how bad a trade war would be for the United States as well as China. Yeah, no, those are all great points. I'm, I'm actually really glad you brought up what the Obama administration was doing, since I think, you know, one of the perceptions that's maybe out there, um, maybe more among people who are a bit sympathetic to Trump, is this idea that Obama really did nothing, let the United States, uh, you know, both Obama and Bush really did nothing, allowed for permanent national trade uh, 
a permanent normal trade relations with China to really devour U.S. manufacturing. But I mean, you know, just uh, in uh, 2015, Obama put, you know, 460% tariff on Chinese steel. If you look at the 2016 national trade estimate that was put out by the U.S. trade representative last year, you'll see a whole laundry list of, uh, you know, abusive trade practices that China engages in, everything from the things you described, including subsidizing uh, subsidizing state-owned enterprises to things in the internet r- realm, the Great Firewall. Um, there was all this, you know, talk of um, China engaging in unfair and unfree trade practices. So this, so this isn't something that the Trump administration suddenly discovered. It's just that its prescription um, for this problem um, is unusually. Um, you know, it is quite unorthodox to uh, go the protectionist route where, you know, U.S. consumers will likely see the prices of a lot of goods that are manufactured in China or have components manufactured in China grow up in price. So, um, like you said, I mean, I don't think this administration's really um, considered why the Obama administration went to the, uh, you know, went to the ends of imposing tariffs on some goods and not on others of, uh, you know, working with a little bit more nuance than simply slapping down punitive measures against China on trade. Um, so I think we'll see where you go um, with um, with China on trade here. Um, let's talk a bit quickly about TPP. Um, since, you know, I think one of the things that's worth really thinking out is the extent to which the U.S. withdrawing from TPP leads to an obvious win for China. Um, and, you know, I mean, I have a I have an article coming out this week in The Diplomat on, on this very topic and just, you know, on the future of trade agreements more generally in Asia. Um, a lot of the commentary that you've been seeing out there is that with TPP's demise, you'll have the quote-unquote China-led free trade area of the Asia-Pacific and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership um, galvanized and you know lead to these agreements. Uh, the FTAP doesn't actually exclude the United States, but RCEP does, you know, lead to these agreements that will benefit China a lot more than the United States. But the reality is a lot more complicated. Um, I mean, I actually want to begin, Shannon, if you don't mind, with just, you know, a quick acknowledgement of the fact that for smaller Asian countries that are looking to manufacture more and export more, there's a big difference between the United States and China just in terms of their, the kinds of economies that they are. I mean, the United States is willing to run big trade deficits um, and, you know, has a massive source of demand within its local economy. In China, you don't have that much demand, consumer demand. I mean, China's been trying to shift its economy in that direction and has failed quite a bit, but you also have a huge trade surplus. So, you know, if you're trying to enter into a trade agreement with these two countries, the U.S. is simply more attractive, primarily because it's willing to run deficits and it has this huge source of demand. So it's a great place to sell your things. So if TPP had been concluded, for example, for a country like Vietnam, you're gaining, you know, access to the U.S. market to sell all your goods where there is a ton of demand for or, uh, you know, low-priced manufactured goods from Vietnam. So it it really isn't a case of simply replacing what the United States could have offered within TPP with China, like, um, you know, Australia and New Zealand, uh, you saw in some news reports, floated that idea. Um, and also RCEP and FTAP, I mean, they're far from a done deal at this point. And, you know, TPP failing is only going to make these states negotiate harder with China. And you might see, you know, a country like Japan, which is participating in both agreements, um, push for higher standards to make up for some of what was lost in TPP. Um, so really, I mean, I think it's a more complicated story than, um, you know, TPP causes the U.S. to lose. So China wins automatically. I mean, I don't think the first part of that is wrong. I think TPP failing um, does negatively affect U.S. leadership and credibility in Asia. Um, but I don't think the second part of that is as obvious. I mean, uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think the way to think about the U.S. losing and China automatically winning is in the sense that 
the U.S. withdrawing from TPP severely damages U.S. credibility in the region. Um, a lot of countries, particularly Japan, um, also Vietnam and Malaysia, these leaders really put a lot of political capital on the line to negotiate mm -hmm. this deal and seal it through. The U.S. is not the only country where the domestic audience has serious issues with TPP. Uh, it's always very difficult to negotiate a free trade agreement because certain constituencies in your country are going to lose out. Uh, so the U.S. withdrawing basically means that leaders like Shinzo Abe wasted their political capital and gained nothing. You know, mm -hmm. So TPP isn't going to take effect, at least not in its current form. That's not going to make Japan's farmers feel any less angry towards Abe for what they see as him selling out their interests. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the sense in which I think that this is an automatic win for China. Uh, because maybe not so much with Japan, which has serious reservations about China for its own reasons, but some of the other smaller countries, you know, Malaysia, Vietnam, um, they are thinking, okay, the U.S. maybe isn't really that interested in economic partnership with us, but China clearly is, um, and China is clearly, this region is its top priority, period. It always has been, always will be, because this is China's region. This is where China is. Of course, it's going to focus most prominently on Asia. Uh, so in that sense, I think it makes China a more attractive alternative than the U.S., because the U.S. has let its partners down so badly. Um, but as you said, this doesn't automatically mean that China is is going to win the trade deal war. Um, as you said, RCEP and TPP are incredibly different trade deals. Um, also, I think Prashant in his article for us on the TPP, you know, takes issue with the idea that RCEP is China led because this is fundamentally, you know, an ASEAN process. The right. whole idea is this is ASEAN plus all the countries who have FTAs with ASEAN. Um, you know, so China is certainly the biggest economy involved in these discussions and has a lot of clout, but I wouldn't really call this a China led process. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, FTAP, I would assume FTAP is just dead in the water because the Trump administration is clearly not interested in these massive multilateral trade deals. And the U.S. is part of APEC, which means it would be part of FTAP negotiations. So we can safely assume that those aren't going anywhere. Right. So, yeah, I think, you know, and again, RCEP was always going to be signed eventually, regardless of what happened with TPP. So... This is not giving China something it didn't already have. It's just kind of magnifying the impact of a process China was already involved in. Mm -hmm. no, that's very true. Um, yeah, and on FTAP, actually, I actually spent the final night of the Obama administration here in New York talking to a few um, APEC negotiators and APEC secretariat members. And they all, I mean, you know, they were just terrified of the prospect of Trump showing up to the APEC leaders meeting and just be completely, you know, being completely disinterested. I mean, the U.S. president has always played a very important personal role at these APEC summits and, you know, being very pro-trade, encouraging negotiation. Well, it's not a negotiation forum. It's a consulta you know, consultation forum. Uh, but I mean, I think that's a very good point on FTAP. I mean, uh, you know, once you have the United States being part of the APEC 21, um, it's going to be a significantly more difficult conversation on trade more generally. Um, you know, and I will say with Japan, I mean, it'll be interesting to see where they go after this with the, uh, 
you know, the bilateral free trade agreement option with the U.S., which has been something that's been floated since, I think, the late 80s. Um, so it's not a new idea. Um, but, you know, I mean, maybe Abe just gets lucky, uh, given that the Japanese opposition is uh, so weak at this point <laughs> and, uh, you know, can pull something off. Uh, he could either, you know, salvage something like a TPP minus 10 um, or you have what the Australians and the New Zealanders are interested in, which is a TPP minus one without the United States. And I should clarify for listeners, um, you know, TPP was signed um, in February last year. And, um, you know, after that happened, there's no going back and changing the text. And currently the entry into force requirements would require, uh, you know, a certain amount of GDP um, to approve the agreement. And without the United States, that's simply impossible. So there's no way the TPP in the form that it was signed in February 2016 can come into effect. Uh, so it would either have to be renegotiated, which is unattractive to countries for a whole host of reasons, uh, primarily because there were a lot of country specific carve outs and you're also losing uh, U.S. market access. Uh, that was actually something a Vietnamese um, APEC Secretariat member told me was, you know, just without the United States, TPP is considerably less attractive for Vietnam uh, specifically, which is the poorest economy uh, that is a part of this agreement. Um, but, you know, I think we're getting a little bit um, away from the broader topic of this episode, which is on U.S.-China relations. Maybe we can do one on Asian trade in the future. Um, so, Shannon, just to bring us back a bit on course, I think this is actually a good segue to talk a bit about some interesting moves we've seen from China in the realm of public diplomacy uh, recently. And I think the big one is Chinese President Xi Jinping going to the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos and giving this big speech where he paints China as this great, you know, outward looking nation interested in picking up the vanguard of globalization. Uh, you know, he uses this metaphorical language about protectionism being the same as locking oneself in a dark room, um, which, you know, will keep the good things out, but also keep the bad things out um, and doesn't really lead to win-win outcomes, as uh, Xi Jinping loves to say. Um, and, you know, apart from that, we also have this white paper from the Chinese Foreign Ministry on Asia-Pacific security that also shows China taking more of an interest in the rules-based architecture of the region. Of the region. Um, I wrote a long article about that. None of that is really new at this point, but it is sort of, uh, you know, poignant to me that you have China saying these things right as Donald Trump is about to be sworn into office. I mean, um, a lot of people have read quite a bit into this and see China finally stepping up to its role as a responsible stakeholder, you know, just uh, 12 years after Robert Zellick articulated that in the mid 2000s. Um, but, you know, I think uh, what's going on here is maybe a little bit more complicated. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, what you think these various bits of messaging from China have meant during the U.S. transition. Yeah, um, I think that China is never going to be and does not want to be a global leader in the sense that the United States is. Um, they're just not interested in being a security provider for you know, the Middle East, um, certainly not for Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they recognize that it is a thankless and often futile task trying to handle, you know, take the point on solving global issues. I mean, look at all of the problems that the U.S. has had trying to negotiate an end to the Syrian civil war. Why would China want any part of that responsibility? No mm -hmm. one's, well, we, increasingly you've seen analysts say, you know, China should step up and do more, but, you know, it's nowhere near the sense that you, you get where it's Obama personally failed because he didn't solve the Syria crisis. No one is going to say Xi Jinping personally failed because he didn't solve the Syria crisis. And China is just not interested in having that 
burden of perception on its shoulders. Um, but there are things that China does want. One is it wants more of a voice in setting rules on global economic issues, because that's where China feels like it is the strongest um, and the most able to sort of throw its weight around on the global stage. Um, so China's big speech, Xi Jinping's big speech at Davos, was really a signal that China is not going to let globalization die without a solid fight. Uh, and of course, you can find all sorts of irony in this because China has a whole host of protectionist practices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a laundry list of industries that it won't let foreign investors anywhere near. Uh, it definitely, you know, restricts competition in a number of ways. But in a general sense, I think China realizes that the liberal trade regime that has been in place under the World Trade Organization and dating back to the post World War II era has really been the key ingredient in China's economic miracle. And as much as China wants to switch to an economic model that's dependent on domestic consumption rather than exports, it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not even close to being there. So they realize that if countries like the United States um, and countries in Europe, which are the biggest trading partners for China, start closing off their borders, um, that's going to destroy China's economy in its current shape. They cannot afford that. So they have a serious domestic interest in coming out and making the strong case for globalization. Um, And of course, it also helps their image because most of the people that she is talking to at the World Economic Forum agree with him. (laughs) They want someone to make the case for globalization. Most economic leaders are praying that someone will come out and defend everything that they've worked so hard to build up. Um, on on a broader level, though, when we talk about global leadership, you know, it's more than just economics. And I think there's a reason that China's white paper, as you mentioned, is limited to the Asia Pacific, because I think China does want a leadership role in the Asia Pacific, and that's pretty clear. But they don't really want the global leadership role. Um, They want to have a say in, you know, setting rules, setting agendas, or reorganizing or creating a completely new security architecture for China and all of the countries that immediately surround it. Sure, they would like to do those things. Um, But that's not global leadership. Right. That is regional leadership. Yeah, no. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I think China, um, they actually had one of their other experts at the World Economic Forum. He is Zhang Jun, who works in the foreign ministry's economics department. He had a quote that he was asked about this question. He said, if China is required to play that leadership role, China will assume its responsibilities. And I think that's very telling. (laughs) This isn't something that China wants to do. (laughs) It's something that it will do if forced to because it sees as the only way to defend its interests. But it's not something that Beijing is, is clamoring for, this global leadership position. No, I think that's absolutely right. And that's the sense that I got reading both Xi's speech and the white paper. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think the way you look at it is that regional hegemony can pay off, but global hegemony is expensive and thankless. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at, 
you know, what the United States has gotten for holding up the liberal international order, uh, which, you know, I mean, some people rightfully criticize that as a form of ensuring U.S. interests uh, if you're looking at it from a third country perspective. But, you know, the U.S. makes enemies abroad. You see flares of anti-Americanism. Um, it's not all, you know, moonlight and roses when it comes to um, enjoying that status in the world. So I can fully understand why China won't want it. I think, you know, one of the interesting test cases might be actually the two-state solution, um, since Trump seems pretty determined to move away from that. And, you know, she last year when he did his uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iran trip, I mean, he made this big speech in Egypt um, that has you know, long been the basis of Chinese policy to support a Palestinian state with, um, you know, Jerusalem as its capital. And um, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, you know, how far China will be willing to go at the UN, at the Security Council, even bilaterally to make a case for that. Um, obviously, the outcome matters because uh, if there is, you know, instability in the Middle East, potentially a broader um, armed conflict between states that affects China's interests. So I think that's an interesting case of where you have a sort of global issue outside of the Asia Pacific region where China and the United States are set to disagree sharply. Um, and I think it'll be telling, you know, how Beijing decides to proceed there. But, you know, I mean, my personal sense is they're not, I mean, that's not a hill they're willing to die on at this point, um, especially yeah. in the first year of the Trump administration. So maybe it won't be and they'll just roll over. But uh, we'll see. I think China's general approach to global issues is to more or less stay in the background and say very anodyne things that really no one in their right mind would disagree with. Um, <laughs> so if you look at what they've been saying on the Syria issue, they're basically saying everyone should stop fighting and we should have a negotiated political settlement. Right. It's like, okay, that's great, China. That is what everyone wants in this scenario. But they're not willing to go any more specific to that, to things that might actually lead to that outcome. Yeah. And... You know, I would see them taking a very similar approach on Israel, um, which in this case, as much as the U.S., particularly under Trump, might kick and scream and protest. I think the general perception of the world is, yes, a two-state solution, you know, as originally envisioned by the U.N., is the correct one. And I think China would put out a lot of diplomatic statements saying that, as they have done. And wouldn't really do anything else. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, that's a good point, exactly actually. What they've done. <laughs> yeah, no, China's going to be with the rest of the world on this one, so maybe that's not the best test of uh, you know China really putting its uh, sticking its head out on a global issue outside Asia. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'll be I'll be curious to see how that plays out along with a lot of other things. Um, I think Afghanistan will be interesting. Um, mm, mm -hmm. You know, Trump has been very silent on this considering how important the united states role is there and it's both a global and a regional issue for china um so it it affects china more directly and i think china is more compelled to get involved but it's also one of these very complicated globalized issues where there's different factions with different interests you have the us russia pakistan India, all sort of tugging in different directions. So it would be a giant mess and a diplomatic headache for China to really get involved. And and that's why it hasn't so far. But if you see the U.S. stepping away, that might be an area where particularly given the potential impacts on Pakistan and the China-Pakistan economic corridor, where China mm -hmm. is pumping, you know, $46 billion into, China might feel compelled to say, okay, this is going to suck, but we actually need to try to solve this one without the Americans. Um, so yeah, 
keep an eye on Afghanistan. I mean, obviously, we have no idea what Trump's going to do there, but could be interesting. Yeah, totally. Oh, you just get, yeah, I just thought of so much stuff that we won't be able to deal with on this podcast. Next podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll do another one. I mean, another big issue is how, uh, you know, a potential U.S.-Russia rapprochement affects China. Um, and yeah. I think that's another one with a big question mark, especially with the Russians kind of cozying up to the Taliban in Afghanistan and stuff. Um, but yeah, we'll save that for another one. Um, all right. So, you know, in the interest of keeping this podcast short enough that I can actually be uploaded to the website without making uh, things too difficult, um, let's wrap up with just a quick reflection on the one China policy, um, which I think is one of the biggest areas where the Trump administration could really screw up and lead to a severance of diplomatic ties with China um, very early on. Um, you know, what's your sense just watching things uh, between the two countries since the Tsai Ing-wen phone call, which we reflected on briefly on this podcast, um, but I'm wondering, you know, if your views have changed and what you've um, witnessed in the past few weeks? Um, I think what we saw was really a classic Trump in some ways, um, which is that he did something, in this case, taking a phone call that I'm sure was arranged and prepped heavily in advance with his advisors, uh, but maybe they didn't explain to Trump exactly what it meant. So he wasn't prepared for the backlash. And when the backlash came, he flashed back at the backlash um, and said some escalatory inflammatory things, both on Twitter and in interviews, um, you know, basically saying he doesn't really understand why the U.S. needs to hold to the one China policy, um, which is kind of his M.O., right? He's accused of violating, you know, this standard. He basically says, well, we don't need that standard anyway. Um, it's, it's the same thing that he's done with, you know, not filing his tax returns, only on a much bigger <laughs> diplomatic stage. What's interesting is that things have mostly died down since then. Um, originally, right after the phone call, people were saying, okay, pay attention when Tsai Ing-wen transits the United States, as she did in January, just before the inauguration for a trip to Central America. You know, if she stops in New York, that's in prime position to meet with Trump advisors because New York is essentially Trump's second home. Um, she didn't transit New York, which is one signal. You know, obviously, the Obama administration was handling that visit, but I think if Trump's team really wanted to, they could have pushed strongly for the visit to be handled differently. Another thing is, as far as we know, at least in terms of public information, there weren't any Trump advisors who who met with Tsai Ing-wen. Obviously, Senator Ted Cruz did from uh, the Republican Party, but you know, not particularly close to Trump. <laughs> he right. refused to endorse him at the Republican National Convention. Uh, so probably not Trump's biggest fan. Um, so that sent a completely different signal, which is that Trump is going to be more cautious on the Taiwan issue. So right now we're kind of caught between these competing polls. Um, you know, is Trump actually willing to go all in on Taiwan? Just is Trump going to basically toe the line on Taiwan? And again, Tillerson in his nomination hearings was clear that the U.S. is going to continue to respect the one China policy, which would seem to contradict Trump. Um, or are we going to see Taiwan's worst nightmare, which is Trump says, look, China, Taiwan's basically up for grabs either way, depending on what Beijing mm -hmm. does. Um, you know, and I, I wrote an article about this, but Taiwan's representative to the United States specifically said Taiwan does not want to be 
a bargaining chip. They don't want their relationship used as leverage to get something good out of China. Um, Interestingly, he also said Taiwan wants a sustainable and predictable relationship with the United (laughs) States, which would seem to imply that Taiwan doesn't want the one China policy to be scrapped because that would be fairly unpredictable and uh, quite arguably completely unsustainable direction for the relationship to go in. So, you know, it might be between China's protests and some serious conversations with people in Taiwan that the Trump administration is sort of rethinking its approach there. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, you had, um, you know, the Chinese Politburo official who just said that he expects cross-strait relations to grow even worse this year. So I can imagine the Taiwanese not wanting to um, see anything too unpredictable from Trump on that count. Um, so, yeah, I agree. That'll be interesting to see where that goes, especially because a lot of Trump advisors are uh, very close to Taiwan. And there's some pretty strong signs that uh, the Heritage Foundation in particular has been a very strong um, contributor to some aspects of Ch- of Trump's uh, East Asia policy and thinking. So, um, you know, but I don't think that they actually advocate for uh, Taiwanese independence or um you know unilateral U.S. support for independence or anything like that. But uh, they are obviously, you know, again, very uh close to Taiwan and supportive of closer U.S.-Taiwan relations. So it'll be interesting to see where things go um, under Trump, certainly. Um, but, you know, a, a size um, congratulations to Trump on his inauguration day was interesting. And I think it dovetailed with what the um, Taiwanese representative said in your article, which was that, you know, it's like um, the I think she said something like democracy is what binds our two societies together. Um, and, you know, it was a reminder that there are real reasons based in values why the United States favors Taiwan and has relations with Taiwan. Um, and, it, you know, it goes more belong, beyond just a realist calculation that will leave Taiwan up as a bargaining chip between the U.S. and China. So um, I thought that was an interesting and subtle way of side delivering that message as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, great. I think we uh, covered quite a bit on this episode. Um, there's going to be a lot more to talk about, like I said. Um, so I'll hope to have you back on to um, just keep an eye on how U.S.-China relations are going under Trump. Um, and I should actually plug the um, very excellent feature that we ran this week with a variety of Chinese scholars, um, some real heavyweights. Um, it's up on the website at The Diplomat. Um, they all kind of offer their view on how they think U.S.-China relations are going to develop under the new administration. So mm-hmm. I guess, Shannon, uh, thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks, Anke. Yeah, this was fun, as always. Um, So for listeners, if you haven't already subscribed, uh, please do so. And if you have subscribed and you've been listening for a while, but you haven't given us a rating on iTunes, please do that. It really helps the podcast gain a larger listenership. And hopefully, we'll be able to keep on keeping this interesting. So, um, oh, and if you're interested in hearing something you haven't heard on the podcast yet, definitely reach out and let me know. Um, But I think we'll be doing a lot more of these on Trump since there's just simply too many uncertainties to be left Uh, to, you know, just plain old news reports without analysis. So thanks a lot for listening, and um, we'll be back soon with more.